Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elves of the city and said, Sir, down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel from the... Sorry, um, I'm also losing my place. <laughs> Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the, the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, and I can... If you will redeem it, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to per perpetrate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the land, hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belongs to Kilian and to Malon, also that belonged to Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the great of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were there at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and, and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. 
Obed, Father Jesse, and Jesse, Father David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, we are in a series on Ruth. Uh, we are coming to the end. We are in chapter four. This is the conclusion, the final act of what has been an incredible journey in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Uh, and for those of you who are just catching up with us um, or haven't read Ruth in a little while, it's, it's a time of the judges, about 12 to 1300 BC. And, and we find in this time a woman named Naomi who leaves with her husbands and sons and goes to the land of Moab. Tragedy strikes, her husband dies, her sons marry a couple of Moabite women, but then they die. And so Naomi finds herself having to return empty-handed with one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, who makes an incredible proclamation of faithfulness to her as she walks back to Bethlehem with Naomi, even though Naomi has, she says, nothing. It's a frowning providence of God upon them, and she's saying that God has dealt bitterly with her. But they return, and the beginning of hope arises uh, Ruth finds herself going out into a field, starts gleaning, and she happens to be by the providence of God in the field of Boaz, who is one of their redeemers. And, and he gives her grace, and he gives her protection, and his generosity towards this diligent, courageous woman is beautiful. And she finds herself for the next six to eight weeks working in his fields under his protection and receiving all the benefits of a gleaner. At the end, uh, Naomi finds herself hatching a plan. I said last week, I'm not sure I love the plan. I'm not even sure it's a good plan, but it was a plan. And, and, and Ruth finds herself in the evening going and asking Boaz for his hand. Yes, she made the proposal to him and she asked him, will you be a redeemer to me? Will you cover over me with the wings of grace, with the wings of favor? Will you move towards me and be a redeemer to me? Will you bring about redemption for my line and for my life? We said that throughout this series that this is, this is ordinary people who God is working and working through in extraordinary, extraordinary means. At the end of chapter three, Naomi had said to, to Ruth, Listen, the man will not sleep before he moves on this. And chapter four begins as though it had heard exactly what Naomi said. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down. Boaz had not wasted any time. He had left the threshing floor and he had headed straight to the city gate. Now, since most of us don't have city gates anymore, uh, you have to understand the city gate was the place. It was kind of an expansive place at the opening of any town of any city. Most towns and cities had really narrow streets and, and there was no place to gather. And so the city gate was the entrance where all commerce, where all civil justice was deliberated, where all beggars were as well as all tradesmen. It's where everything happened. It was the marketplace. It was Facebook, basically. Everything happens there and everyone's watching. It's where justice is not able to be perverted because there are witnesses, because the elders, those that are respected by the town, sit there to care and to oversee all that happens. That's where Boaz goes. Without hesitation, he heads straight to the city gate to find out what can be. And it says that he's sitting there and behold, almost like by chance, almost like God's in this. There's this man, this redeemer. I call him KR1, Kingsman Redeemer 1. Um, so KR1 starts walking down and towards the city gate. And so we have Boaz standing up and saying, will you, my friend, come over. Friend, it says here, will you come and, and will you sit for a minute? And so KR1's like, okay, sure. And so he sits down and, and, and Boaz says, hold on a minute. And he goes about and he collects several of the elders of the town. And he says, well, will you sit now? which tells us a little bit about the magnitude of what kind of man Boaz is. Because I don't know about you, but I'm going somewhere and someone tells me to sit down. 
I better have some respect for them if they're just some fool and like, you sit down, you know? So, so Boaz clearly has a reputation in the town and a reputation in the city in a way that makes people say, absolutely, I would love to do that. Boaz has been, from the moment Ruth proposed to him, committed to doing what is right. Almost the first, things out of, first words out of his mouth were, hold on, Ruth, there's actually a kinsman redeemer closer than me. I am committed to, to, to behaving and to moving towards you, to acting as your kinsman, as your redeemer, but there is, there is one closer, which makes most of us want to say, come on, Boaz, right? I mean, where has this guy been? I mean, it's been weeks. I mean, surely it would be okay if you just kind of took matters into your own hands here. I mean, Forgiveness is better than permission, right? You don't have to go through. You, you might risk losing this. Don't, don't go through with this. Just, just kind of go around this situation. God seems to have clearly, Boaz, provided this for you. Don't tempt it. Just walk in it. But that's not the question that Boaz is answering. Boaz is answering the question, what is the right thing to do? And what does it look like to, by faith, choose to do that? What does faith-filled way of living look like? Boaz's primary concern seems to be, above all things, a guided concern for the law of God and a love for his Lord above his own desires. Now, Boaz is not some stoic Bible character who doesn't have any personality or longings or desires. He wants to marry Ruth. His emotions are there. They're strong. They're palpable. But he's longing for the name of the Lord to be praised through his life. And, and what's cool, as I've been thinking about this more and more, is that he's acting by faith. And this is what I mean. You know, all of our Christian life is an act of faith, right? And, and, and his faith is, he's saying this, he's saying, though I desire this, though I long for this, what I'm actually choosing is I'm choosing to say, I want to wait to receive what you appear to be giving to me, Lord, from your hand. I'm going to trust that I'm actually going to receive it by waiting to receive it and not saying I'm going to presume upon what I think you have for me and take it for myself. If it feels so right, how can it be wrong? He wants to receive from the Lord. And so I think it just naturally begs the question for us. Is there anything in our life? Is there anything in your life that you're currently looking at going around in order to get what you think you have to have? Is there a situation, are there circumstances in, in your life, either past or present, where, where you're cutting corners, where you're, where you're taking prematurely what is not actually yours, where you're presuming upon an outcome and not waiting for the Lord? Is there somewhere in your life where you're saying, it's not that big of a deal? I mean, it's just not that big of a deal. No one's asking this question. Does, does it really matter? I don't even know that anyone's going to care or anyone's even going to know. If that's the case, if that's where you are, I, I want to remind you that it's not too late to go to the city gate. You can always come home. You can always go home. You can always enter into the relationship that you have with people in your community or, or wise and truthful and loving men and women that are around you and, and tell the truth and invite them to step into and give you wise counsel. Come to the city gate. 
I have a situation kind of right now that, that's kind of connected to this. It brought it to mind immediately when I was reading this passage. Uh, we have uh, uh, next to our property um, the runoff from our entire subdivision, basically. We are, if you've heard me talk about my yard before, I love my yard. But it has been a bit of a curse over the years at times. And literally all the runoff from my yard comes down to one particular point, And it just fans out across a section of the, yard, the property adjacent to me. Now, it's not on my yard anymore taking the work to make it off of my ear, but it's still fanning out and creating this kind of messy, marshy environment, and that's just not acceptable to me. <laughs> so one of the things that I've been uh, daydreaming about for the last couple of years, especially since I once used an excavator, and wow, that's fun, um, has been <laughs> to trench from the edge of my yard all the way to the creek. There's an adjacent creek that's not too far from there and to be able to, to take all this runoff water and run it straight over to this little creek, which happens to go through a parcel of property which does not belong to me. Now, it's a property that belongs to some people that are like a third of the mile all the way up on the front road on Trickham Road, like way far away. Actually, they're an older couple, they're quite a bit older, and, and it's been years since they've actually come down there to do anything with the property, and so it's massively overgrown. You know what? It's so overgrown, this is the truth, it's so overgrown, I don't think they can get there anymore. So, I don't think they would even know if I trenched it out. You know what I'm saying? And let's be honest, even if they, let's say they sold it, and there was already a trench there, the guy who buys it is probably going to go like, I guess there's a trench here, right? So, I mean... I have thought this through, folks. <laughs> and forgiveness is better than permission. So um, <clears throat> it's been really tempting. I mean that. I mean, how many times have I said, I could just quietly? But that's, uh, I know. That's not the right thing to do. And what does faith look like? And so this past month, Becky and I called the owner of the land. And we're in the process of dialoguing with her about what it would look like either to, to, to buy a section of the land so that I could do that or to ask permission, you know, what a notion, to, to, to go ahead and entrench uh, through there. But what I realize is this, there's no guarantees with that. They could say no. And it's a whole different thing than to start trenching through someone's property when they said no, right? What does faith look like here? What does it look like for me to trust that God if the answer is no, that either there's another way or that he will have mercy for me in living with the mess. Do I, do I trust him with the mess? Do I trust him with what isn't when a solution is so present for me, so close I could just take it? I don't know if this relates to you. And of course, this is a, this is a pretty small, minor thing, right? I mean, this isn't, this isn't the big, major things of life. It's a pretty small matter. One of the things that I've learned, though, I feel like the longer I'm with people, the longer I, I see and experience the challenges of life, the more I've come to realize that it's in these secondary and tertiary matters of faith that, that we find ourselves being able to move towards the primary and pivotal moments without having to even blink. See, my sense here is that Boaz is in front of the gate talking about all this, bringing this all to light, and showing up in front of the other kinsmen because he's made this decision over and over with secondary and tertiary matters. He's done this before. This is not a pivotal decision to, for him to do anymore. It's actually just the natural outflow of how he lives. That's what it means for us to become people of faith, is that faith becomes the first and natural response. Not the easy one. Not the free one or the costless one, but the natural one, because we're trusting in the one we have faith in. Well, everyone's present. 
And Boaz starts the conversation about what exactly are the facts of the case to this near redeemer to KR1. And he basically says, okay, Naomi has come back from Moab and she has a plot of land. And this plot of land is something that is to be purchased. She's selling it right now. And he's saying, I wanted to say to you first that you have first right of it. If you would like to redeem it, then go ahead and redeem it. But if you don't, let me know because I'm next. There's this tense moment, probably lasted longer than we would realize. And KR1's looking down at his sandals, evaluating the situation. And he says, I'll redeem it. I'll redeem it. I will do it. And everyone who's reading the story goes like, no, this is not how the story's supposed to go. Right? This is, Hallmark does not write this story. This is not how it goes. Like he's supposed to say, no, clearly you're the better man for Ruth and for the, you've shown yourself so faith. No, he says, I'll take it. Thank you very much. I will redeem it. Uh, one of the things I noticed is he asks no questions. He, he doesn't concern himself with, okay, so what, what is this going to mean for Elimelech's posterity? What, what are the implications for Naomi and, and, and maybe this Ruth woman that he has heard about? What, what are its implications? He's very happy to add this fine parcel to his portfolio. But he has no sense of questioning what in the world the implications will be for them. He's looking forward to, especially in light of the likelihood that Naomi, being an older woman, is not going to be able to bear any children, that therefore this plot of land would become his permanent property. It, it's, it's a good deal. It's a good deal. He's being given the opportunity to prosper. And instead of asking the question, what will my prosper, prosperity cost someone else? What will what the blessing for me be, have implications on anyone else? He just says, I'll take it. I'll take it. And Boaz says, well, I'm not finished. Before we start swapping sandals here, just give me a minute. There's more. Something else for you to consider. The, the, the moment you take the land, you get Ruth. You get Ruth, the Moabitess, he clarifies, just in case he forgot. Now, I mean, I've read plenty of commentators that are talking about how shrewd Boaz is here, how he's like, you know, carrot, you know, carrot stick, you know, or whatever, you know, just, um, and, I, you know, obviously speculation in the narrative, we're not, but all we know is this is that Boaz took the reality of what was going on and he presented the opportunity for prosperity first. He presented first the good news of the, um, the good news of that the property would become something valuable to him. And then secondly, he presented the opportunity for real redemption, for responsibility over those who he would care for. You see... If, and we talked about this last week, but if KR1 had a child with Ruth, the property which he is going to have to spend money and assets to kind of turn around, you know, it's like it's been laying fallow for a while, so it probably needs some work, you know, probably needs an excavator to try and help it out a little bit. Um, but he, there's work to be done. There's actually money to be invested in order for this to become something that's a real asset to his family over the long term. And so, He's going to be out something. And, and if for some reason he has to take Ruth and, and, and they have a son, well, then all the investment, all the money he's put into getting this land to be valuable again will go to Elimelech's line. 
it'll actually revert back to, because this is the son of now Ruth, he's now brought about a new line for Elimelech's line, and this will no longer be his property. It'll actually go off and away from him. So he says, I I can't do it. Changes his mind. Ruth is a game changer for him. It says, lest I impair my own inheritance. The land is a good deal. The widow is too much. Now, the windfall he thought was going to be good, he realized was going to cost him. I can't redeem it, he says. I'm going to have to invest, in, I'm going to have to invest assets that I can't guarantee are going to benefit me. I, I can't guarantee that it's actually going to be for my good. If Ruth bore a son, then the investment in the land would revert back to the line of Elimelech. And I would have impoverished myself for no benefit. Well, let me say this. I would have impoverished myself for no benefit to me. You see, he, he would have lost so that someone else who was and had lost could gain. He would have become less so that someone who was already less could become more. He would be laying down something that he already had for someone who had nothing and would be picking it up for their sake. KR1 is being invited into the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. That's what he's being called into. It's what he's being drawn into, where we gain by losing, where we receive by giving away, where we live by dying. That's how the gospel works. That's how the kingdom of God works. And KR1 passes on the deal. The irony, of course, here is that he sees Ruth as this, like this liability, when in fact she is the most valuable asset in the transaction, as we've seen. She's amazing. Who knows what kind of prosperity she could have brought about for him with her diligence, with her courage, with her integrity, her reputation. But he says no. I will not do it. He's blinded by his both self-interest and his self-preservation. It's too risky. He's unable to see what has become crystal clear for Boaz. And, and, and it, it just it brings to mind the reality of this, that outside of the Christian worldview, a secular worldview in particular, doesn't make sense when we start talking about areas of sacrifice and nobility, of people giving up and giving away their time, their energy, their resources, their money. Like, it doesn't make sense outside of a Christian worldview. You do know that, right? Like, like you realize that, that if, you're, if you're saying, hey, listen, the, the, the fact is, all things are random. Everything is primarily chaos, and we're trying to make the most of what we can do here, and it's predominantly survival of the fittest is, is the philosophy by which all things will work. Well, then what Boaz is doing is folly. You, you don't sacrifice. You take care of. You, you KR1 this thing. You make sure that your assets are protected. But, but that's not the kingdom of God. You see, to the degree in which we're able to see a, a, a Christ on the cross crucified for us to the degree in which we're able to see that God is a self-giving God in his essence as he is. Well, then we begin to say, well, then this makes sense. And we can call that which is noble, noble and sacrificial, sacrificial and beautiful, beautiful. It's fitting. It belongs exactly how life really is. The second irony is this, is that KR1, as I've been calling him, doesn't have a name. 
I mean, it's ironic. He's actually trying to preserve his name, right? He's trying to make a name for himself. He's trying to protect who he is and the story he's writing. And he's not in the story. I mean, in chapter, in verse 2, when, when Boaz actually greets him, the Hebrew idea there is, no joke, Mr. So-and-so is what it says. I have translated my friend because Mr. So-and-so is weird, right? But Mr. No-name is Mr. So-and-so, like, Diddly doodly. I mean, it's just, it's like literally, who is this person? Nobody knows. And, and there's speculation as to why that's the case. But the bottom line is this. His name does not appear here. His story ends when he hands that, sto- that sandal over. It ends. He's no longer part of the plan of redemption. He's, he's stepped outside of that and he's forfeited it. He's passed on that which is beautiful. He's lost his own name in the story. Uh, commentator Matthew Henry says, uh, because he refused to raise up the name of the dead in Elimelech, he deserves not to have his name preserved for the future ages or its history. So what we learn here in this beginning section of chapter four is the fundamental principle that we gain by losing, which is at the center core of the gospel. It's what Christianity actually is based on, that we gain by losing because we follow one who has gained by losing. And therefore, integrity and sacrifice, which we see in Boaz, are the marks of a God-saturated life. So KR1 removes his sandal and removes himself from the scene, and the whole town celebrates. They say, we are witnesses to the fact that you today have taken, you have taken Naomi's land, and you have now taken for your bride Ruth, and that you are going to raise up, as he says, this is my plan, I'm going to raise up for Elimelech descendants, a name, a future. He's not, oh, is there a way I can get away with that? He's saying, I want to make sure what you know, what I'm actually doing today. I'm honoring God. I'm writing a big story, and I don't even know exactly how it's going to play itself out. We gain by losing. And then they, I think, beautifully, they speak a blessing over the man who, at this point, every time he seems to open his mouth, speaks a blessing. He is blessed. And then we move to the second section, in a sense, of this, um, of this uh, chapter 4. And we, we see in, in, in verse 13 the rapid shift of events. We've been kind of walking moment by moment with Ruth and Boaz at one long day and then one long night at the threshing floor and now one long morning. And suddenly we blitz through a year or maybe two years of time. And it says that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The story had started with three deaths, back to back to back. Sorrow and distress, and it concludes with a wedding and a baby being born. It's as though Psalm 30 was written thinking about this, when it says, Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I do want to say a side note here, and I couldn't get away from this. All of life comes from the Lord. I don't have time to draw all this out this morning, but I'd be remiss if I didn't capture the significance of the clause between the commas. That it says that he went into her and she bore a son, right? That's that's how it goes. And there's two commas here. And in the middle of the comma, it says, and the Lord gave her conception, which is, of course, thematic for the entire picture of this, of this book. God's doing everything under the scenes. He's moving all things for his purposes. 
But more significantly, it's a fundamental understanding for us who believe in Christ, who know God, who say that this is exactly why we hold to the value and the significance of life, both in the unborn and in the elderly. It's not, and this is very important. I think oftentimes we get wrapped up into debates, particularly about abortion, where we find ourselves debating the reality of how developed a a child is and how many fingers it has by what point. And those are real things, and I'm not trying to knock that. that, But the fundamental reason why why we wrestle with and we fight for the preservation and protection of an unborn child at any phase is because it is from God. Because it is from him, it belongs to him, which means he decides He chooses. He gives life. He takes life. All of life is therefore precious to him. And I was struck by this just a couple weeks ago when I was reading this article and I just started crying when I, that, I think it was 90% of all moms who are taking the prenatal test who discover that their child has Down syndrome abort the baby. 90%? there's a documentary called A World Without Down Syndrome. And this is just a small picture, but A World Without Down Syndrome. And I kept thinking of uh, the Quams, who uh, Roger's brother, Eugene, who has Down Syndrome. And uh, one of the most delightful people you'll ever meet. Um, like that's the reality of when we stop seeing the world, how God sees it. Life belongs to God. The book of Naomi opened um, with sorrow. And it closes with joy. Naomi is a woman of bitterness and she finishes with celebration. Which leads us to this principle number two. And that is that there is a hope and a future. All of God's purposes in our lives, both the bitter and the sweet, are working for our redemption. All of the purposes for God in our lives, both the bitter and the sweet, are working for our redemption. We said this week, we said that week one, and it was primarily in the midst of just bitterness and sorrow. And we say this now with confidence, not because things have really significantly changed. Sorrow is still real for Naomi. Moms, wives, if you lost a husband and sons, it doesn't go away. It doesn't just disappear. It's still there. It's just it's been infused by, it's been replaced by, it's been added to with new hope. The book of Ruth reminds us that we have no idea what God is working on. We have no idea what he's trying to accomplish. We're going through our days and some of those days are deeply filled with sorrow. They're a dark valley and we can't even see the sunshine. Now, others of us are, are, are in renewed seasons of, of excitement and celebration of new beginnings and others are just mourning sorrowful ends. Regardless of all those things, we know that God's plans are being perfected and worked in our lives. He's wasting nothing. He is weaving everything into your life. Everything for your redemption. And this is what's so surprising, so amazing, is that these women look at Naomi and they make this declaration. They say, these are the same women that Naomi had come and said, don't call me, don't call me um, Naomi anymore, call me bitter. Because God has been bitter to me. And now these very same women, the women of this town, look at her and they, and they make this incredible proclamation. This, this blessing, it's actually a prophetic blessing over her. They said, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. 
for your daughter-in-law who loves you, which at this point has become so clear to everyone, who is more to you than seven sons, which is the number of perfection of seven, like, like Ruth is the bomb. I mean, can we all agree? Like, okay, so Ruth is amazing. She's better than seven sons. Well, she has given birth to him. This prophetic blessing is prophetic because it's saying, you've gotten a redeemer. Naomi, you have a redeemer. Who's she talking about? If you read it quickly, what you naturally think is, well, as Boaz, right? I mean, we've been talking about Boaz as the, the redeemer the whole time. So, I mean, Boaz is, is, is the redeemer and, and he's the one whose his name is going to be great in Bethlehem. Of course it is. And he's the guy who's going to be able to, he's restoring your life. I mean, your, your property, your, the name potentially, of the name now with the, the grandson of, of, of your husband. He's nourishing you in your old age. It's Boaz, right? No. Oh, maybe it's Ruth. Well, no, it can't be Ruth. It's the baby. Look at the passage. It's neither Ruth nor Boaz. It is, as she says right here. You have not left you without a redeemer, for your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. Now, why in the world is the baby the redeemer? How is the baby the redeemer? It doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense unless we understand the full picture of the scriptures. That from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have been finding themselves looking ahead from the promise God made in the garden in the midst of the curse after they had fallen. They're saying to look ahead to one who would come towards one from God that was promised, who would come to save his people, who would come and undo all that was broken and all that was marred and disfigured by sin. One who would conquer death and who would bring life. One who would rule the whole world with grace and justice and righteousness forever and ever. And for generations, they have waited. And for generations, they have looked. That's who Naomi and Boaz and Ruth are looking to. That's who they have to look to. They can't look to themselves. And unbeknownst to them, this little bundle of Obed, it has in himself the very seed as he lays there in this small little town of Bethlehem, how sweetly it lies. This little town of Bethlehem has in this little baby Obed, the very seed of the one who would find himself in this very same little town of Bethlehem, 1,300 or so years later, being announced by the angels as they declare over him, behold, I bring you good news of great joy shall be to all people. For unto you today is born in this city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They had no idea. They had no idea. All they had was the hope of a promise. All they could do was see through a glass darkly that this descendant of David, that this descendant of Obed, that this descendant of Ruth and Boaz would be none other than Christ the Lord. You don't know what God's doing in your life. And oftentimes, if you're like me, you don't even understand exactly what he's accomplishing, what his purposes are, especially when it's bitter and sorrowful. He is not wasting anything. He is moving towards the redemptive good that he is wanting to accomplish in you. And because of the redemptive good he's accomplishing in you, he's wanting to accomplish a redemptive good through you to all the people he's given you from family to community to this very church, to the neighbor next to you, to the coworker. 
In, in the child on Naomi's lap, we see hope. We see a vision of what can be, a future that is unfolding, just like the future that we hold to. Loved ones, because of the child that was born in Bethlehem and who died on Calvary, we live with the same kind of unshakable hope. Not pretending like what is broken is not broken, but unmoved because of the promise from him. The last thing we see is this peculiar end to the book with a genealogy. Now, Art loves genealogies, but most people are like, <laughs> skip, 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 words, 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 where's the story? That's not me, Art, just saying, value the genealogies. But it ends with a genealogy, which kind of feels like, like an, almost an appendix. You know, okay, cool, I guess. But there's so much more in this. There's so much more in this. What we see in this last little section is fascinating. It's that God shapes us through our sovereign foundations and he sends us into a legacy building that is Christ-centered for God to use. God has built sovereign foundations into us and we see that, well, the genealogy goes all the way back to Perez, who was the son of Judah. That's a messy story back up there. We'll leave that alone for today. But he goes down in the Minadab and Nashon. Nashon gives birth to Salmon and Salmon apparently was the father of Boaz. And so there's this sense of these sovereign foundations that belong to Boaz. Boaz then to Obed, all the way down to David. And it just made me think, where, where do you come from? Like, do you see the foundations of how God has laid your life? How he has pursued you? How he has chased you down? How he has loved you when you were unlovable? How he has granted you either incredible people in your life or real broken circumstances in your life? And how he has used every bit of those things to be able to create a tapestry on which he could write in beautiful, incredible things? Do you trace the finger of God across your life? The, so the, the sovereign foundations which he is not wasting in this very moment for you. He's working all things in light of how he has made you, how he has forged your character in you. I, I got to spend some time with, um, with Sanjith and, and Priya David. Um, I asked him permission for this, by the way, just so you know, if you're here a month and I ask you if I can use your name in a sermon, <laughs> this will be a good litmus test. But um, it was a wonderful time with, with the two of them getting to understand their story. But Sanjith shared with me that his great-grandfather uh, in India uh, was one of seven children and, and that a missionary had come and had actually taken his great-grandfather and had raised him up almost as his own. And in the process, had led him to come to know and to love Jesus. And that because of that, every person on the tree that comes from his great-grandfather has come to know and to love Jesus. And, and, and as we were talking, it was awesome to see him get excited and animated about the work of God. And he said, he said the notion, this is my paraphrase, so you, you said it at least this well. So the notion of God sovereignly choosing and calling his people out of a lost world is not just an idea. It was the very literal reality as God reached into a family and drew out one son and saved a family. And, and I thought about that and I thought, man, talk about sovereign foundations. Like you can just see, you can trace back the finger of God in your life and I could feel it off of you. It was awesome. And, and I can do that in certain areas of my life. I can also look at some of the broken stuff. And the, the sovereign things that were not so great. And, and how God has used, and ironically, Sandy, you're here. I remember Sandy Shattuck looking at me and saying, you understand that the very cracks and, and fissures that are in the imperfect imperfection of your parenting for your children are going to be the very avenues in which God's going to use to show them how much they need him. So all the stuff that's broken in you, all the things that aren't, 
you do understand those are the very avenues that you're most likely, most palpable to be able to experience and receive the perfect grace of God. That was not true from your parents. That was not true from your friends. That was not true from the mentors. That was not, that was imperfect. He wastes nothing. He has written sovereign foundations into you to the praise of his glory. And he's written these foundations so that there can be a legacy for the generations to come. You understand that you are laying a legacy for your children, for those that God has entrusted to you. And to the degree that we understand the magnitude of how important this is, we'll be on our knees. Which I, I, Lord, I wish I had been far more on my knees for my kids than I was. And humbly so recognizing like I'm hopeless without God. But also receiving the grace of God to stand up and say, all right, so how am I going to discipline? How am I going to catechize? How am I going to disciple and train and raise up and tell the truth and, and ask forgiveness too and, and, and forgive and pray for and pray with? We have a legacy to, to, to create. And I just kept thinking, how did Boaz become the kind of man who is gracious, who has integrity, who, who sacrifices for other? How did Boaz become the kind of man who would see Ruth and not see her primarily as a poor widow and a foreigner. Well, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Had God shown grace and it was uh, clearly, clearly, again, Boaz was a God-saturated man. But he was clearly influenced by who he comes from. If you look at the genealogy, it says that Salmon was the father of Boaz. Salmon's wife was Rahab. Rahab and Salmon had Boaz. Who are, Rahab, who are Rahab and Boaz, you might ask? Again, so glad you have good questions. Well, Rahab, you might remember, is the, the woman in Jericho. Oh, I'm sorry. She's the prostitute in Jericho. The, the foreigner prostitute in Jericho who received the two spies who had come from Israel to be able to find out what is the land like. And, of course, they found out that they were there and they were going to be killed, so she hid them. And as she hides them, she makes this incredible declaration that, that, that this very God, well, let me actually read what she says. She says, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She makes this incredible declaration and she says, I'm going to trust in you and so will you show favor upon me? And, and she finds herself trusting that God, this God who she's seen do incredible things because they come into the land of Canaan, She's going to trust him. She hides them. She sends them away. And she says, but will you remember me? And she trusts God that as the walls of Jericho crumble, that her walls do not. That her family will be preserved when all else will be destroyed. She did so by tying this red rope around the window. That was a declaration of her faith. The rope didn't do anything. But her faith said, I'm trusting that God will come through for me. Rahab is the Gentile prostitute, and she is boldly commended in Hebrews 11 and in James chapter 2. Twice in the New Testament, she's commended for her faith, for her actions. And, and Salmon, we don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, some people have speculated that he was maybe one of the two spies, you know, that, that she was, he kind of was like, hey, you saved my life. Let's go on a date. You know, no one knows. But, but, that, but that's possible. That's possible. Now, maybe he had just heard. Maybe he just heard the report of the kind of woman she was, that she, had, that she had had this faith, that she had trusted in the midst of, like, not having a lot of reason to. It's not like there were churches on every corner. But maybe, we don't know. Maybe that's the case. Maybe he'd heard the report. But this do we know. That Salmon chose Rahab. 
And he chose her in spite of the fact that she was a foreigner. And he chose her in spite of the fact that she had kind of a sketchy background. I'm sorry, especially had a very sketchy background. He chose her. Which now, how much of a surprise is it then that Boaz, in seeing Ruth, would find himself saying, oh, 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 God can work all kinds of things through all kinds of people. Like this woman who clearly has had the kind of faith that I remember hearing about from about my mom, from my parents. Like she's someone I bet God could use in mighty ways like he used my mom in my life. Like my, my parents displayed before me. And, and so I can move with integrity, with, with courage, with generosity towards someone that most people are just overlooking. KR1 included. Just ignoring. This can't be good for me. And he's saying this must be good for me. It can be. He doesn't see her as a poor widow foreigner no, he sees her as someone who, just like his mom said, I, I'm not gonna, my, these people are not going to be my people anymore. God's people are going to be my people, and God is going to be my God. I'm going to turn my orientation to manifest itself towards him. So, this is the kind of mantle that we have in forming our children, forming our grandchildren, and participating in the discipling with one another as we support, encourage, challenge, whether it's in the back with kids or in community groups, as you love and encourage and grow up young men and young women who will be like Boaz. Not because Boaz is great, but because the God in whom Boaz has faith is great. He is the redeemer. So, you can't do this. You can't do this. You, you, the be like Boaz sermon doesn't work. So if you're, if you're sitting here and you're feeling guilty and you're like, man, I'll never be a Boaz. Not, Ruth, no one's going to write a book about me. Like, that's not the story. The great story is about Jesus. You understand that, right? It's about what he's accomplished and done on your behalf and for you. So, so that's all the orientation you have this morning, which is why we head straight to the table. You must see him, you know. You, you must see him being the one with integrity, the one with faithfulness towards you. You must see that in order for you to become the kind of people who have integrity and faithfulness like Boaz and like Ruth. Like, it's only as you see him doing it for you that you will then receive it and allow to, yourself to begin to participate in the very ways in which he wants to do so. You can't do it. Oh, but he can, and he can in you. So let us, let us trust him. As he looks at us, and as you take the elements this morning, and you find him looking at you and saying, I came for you, and I am now with you. Like that song we sang earlier, like he's with us today. I don't know what you walked in with, I don't know what you're walking out with, but he is with you today. With you today. And, oh, hope of all hopes, he is coming back for you. And so, like Naomi with the child on her lap with great hope for the future, we sit here knowing the one who came as a baby who died for our sakes, and we have great hope for our future. Come what may, come what is in the midst of your life. That's the beauty of the table. So let me pray. Father, we have uh, nowhere else to go, and I, I, I want to thank you for the, the beauty and the power of the story that you gave us in Ruth and Boaz and how you interwove the, the majesty and the beauty of who you are into the sovereign movement in their lives, that we would have a story of your faithfulness to your people, that we would have a faithfulness of, to your people that then manifests itself in your people. Because, Lord, we want to become people that are like that, that are like your son, who are free because of what you've accomplished in us to be able to accomplish through us immeasurably more than we could possibly imagine. 
And so we, we throw ourselves on you as our only hope. And uh, it's the best place. And so as we take these elements, we remember that. We remember who you are and we remember what you've accomplished for us and we receive you as, um, as our only, only hope. It is the mystery of our faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Pray these things in your name. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. This is your meal of faith as you come and you receive. If you don't know Christ this morning, it's your opportunity to say, I want to know him more. So I invite you to pray, to reflect. And, and, and if today is a day when you're saying, I, I want to know him, like I actually want to entrust myself to him, then, then reach out to him. And, and this can become your table today as you come forward and in faith say, I give my life to you. If you belong to Jesus this morning, if you've chosen him, if he has received you, well then come and receive his body and blood for you. Come forward.